Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Veena Howard, who is Associate Professor, pardon me, she's now full professor of Asian, of Asian Religions and Endowed Chair in Jain and Hindu Dharma at California State University at Fresno. Veena, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Valkaran. Oh, Raj, only Raj. And, and, and you know, my continuing studies uh, students call me Dr. Raj. But anyhow, um, you, uh, you went from associate professor to professor in a very short time. So congratulations. Must feel good. Thank you so much. Yes, it does feel good. It's a milestone. <laughs> it is a milestone. Mazel tov. And, and tell us a little bit, uh, before we dive into this exciting work, tell us a little bit about this position of endowed chair in Jain and Hindu Dharma. How did that come about? Uh, thank you for that question. Uh, this is one of a kind endowed chair, I would can say, in the world. So usually they have endowed chairs in, in Jainism or you know Hinduism or Sikhism. Uh, but here, the two communities came together, uh, Jain community and Hindu community, in the spirit of bridge building, right? I mean, Tirthankara is the one who bridge, is a bridge builder. And the idea in Buddhism and uh, Hinduism, the idea of bridge building. So these communities came together to help enhance the education of our students in the valley. Our valley, if you know anything, is a San Joaquin Valley. It's a very, we have students who are um, from first generation, college going students. Um, so it's a, it's a very kind of a, sometime people come from rural areas and come from, you know, the areas they don't, might not have much exposure to Jain and Hindu traditions. So this is the opportunity and I'm building courses and I'm also part of the and our chair is that I also build courses and education in Gandhi studies, uh, Mahatma Gandhi. So, so we also have established a MK Gandhi Center, Inner Peace and Sarvodaya. That's also endowed. Fantastic. Fascinating work you're doing. 
before we dive into the book, I want to say that um, um, some listeners may or may not be aware, but I've, I've interacted with you and collaborated with you, uh, I think a number of times now in, in, in different facets. And I remember vividly uh, as a, what was I? I was a PhD student. University of Calgary, which is 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 part of the Pacific Northwest uh, region of the American Academy of Religion, and, and I go to the annual um, um, regional conference uh, where you were also presenting, and there was this sort of connection that I could feel, but really I had no idea that we would collaborate in so many different ways, from from uh, the problem of world's religions to um, the Donham, to, to also the book at hand, which is uh, Indian Philosophy and Gender, actually the, Blooms book, the Bloomsbury Research Handbook of Indian Philosophy and Gender. Really fascinating uh, title. Tell us a little bit about how this project came into being. So this, this book is in the series um, of Bloomsbury and it's called the Bloomsbury Research Handbook. And then one before me, this book came, is called a Handbook of Chinese Philosophy and Gender. And my PhD supervisor, Ram Prasad Chakravarti, who you had interviewed as well for his book, he invited me to, um, to be the editor of this book. So I thought we'll be co-editors. So I said, Ram, are we going to be the co-editors? He goes, no, <laughs> you're in charge now. So I had to really... Um, dive into this uh, new sort of, you know, we do um, gender in our courses, in our, when I was doing Gandhi studies, but doing a whole handbook, a research handbook on gender in Indian philosophy required a lot of research on my part, a lot of thinking through the subject, a lot of um, how to bring the volume together, how to select uh, a variety of scholars who can write on a variety of um, topics. So it was a, you know, kind of a leap of faith and also very adventurous and fun journey that I, I went through. I remember, <laughs> this was before dissertating, you, you had, for whatever bizarre reason, you found some, some random <laughs> PhD student and you're like, I want you to be part of this. And I'm like, I don't do gender. <laughs> and actually, I, I believe it may, I, I remember declining. And, and then um, post-defense, I had this um, this apocryphal chapter just sort of <laughs> sitting sitting there wondering, what can I do with this, this, this Samya myth cycle, which uh, I thought, you know, very much relates to portrayals of the feminine. Um, and here we are, here we are. You roped me in. So I was able to contribute to this. Um, my own contribution has to do with an analysis of uh, Sanskrit narrative. Having said that, there are a variety of types of projects and methods in this. Could you say a word perhaps about how the book is organized or a word about the various types of projects we see in the volume? Uh, that's a great question. That was my biggest challenge. You know, the, the vast field of Indian philosophy, as we know, offers complex and nuanced construction of gender categories, um, including gender transcendence, gender essentialism, gender negotiation, gender hybridity, gender androgyny, um, alternative gendered practices, uh, embedded power structures of heteronormativity, how do we, and also 
the recognition of a third gender, right? Which is very unique. How am I going to bring it together? So the two, two challenges were for me, how do I define philosophy? Because the authors who wrote for me, they are on almost like a liminal state, right? They both are navigating religion and philosophy um, spheres. And then the second was, how do I tackle this very vast field of gender in, in, within the Indian uh, philosophical religious traditions? Um, so then I define um, philosophy, of course, I went to the root word, darshana. And darshana is the worldview. How do we see gender configured, presented, represented, negotiated in various texts. And of course, I mean, this volume is like a scratching the surface um, of the iceberg, great big iceberg. And I think it will offer a lot more opportunities to other scholars to explore, take it to um, a different level as, um, President now Lori Patton mentioned in our book review panel at the AAR that this is the kind of what she called it is a seed uh, world, like it's a seed to really now we can talk about the serious implications of, in the real life implications of studying gender. I've said it before and I'll say it again on the podcast from time to time. The best books are actually beginnings. The best books are just, you know, making a clearing for, for much more work to be done. And I really get the sense uh, with, with this volume as well. Having said that, there is a lot in here. Um, tell us about the sections of the book, or if you'd like, we can say maybe a word about each of the contributions. Sure. I think that will help uh, the listener to sure. see sort of imagine this book and of course then people can look at it um, online. So I begin with my introduction which is a sort of um, you know if you have a big pile of things and you have to organize them right you know there's so many ideas are there since there is no existing book before this one and I, I think still there is none another this kind of book of course there's a Many people have worked amazing on gender issues. Um, I wanted to really engage uh, with the existing scholarship on gender in, in the Western world, in the Western, uh, by Western ac academics. So what I did, the I engaged with them in order to make sense of what, I, what we are doing in this volume. So what I call my first um, introduction chapter, gender conceptions in Indian thought, identity, hybridity, fluidity, and androgyny and transcendence. So all each, each one of the section, it will correspond to these issues. So what I did then, I um, lifted up the thoughts of different feminist gender scholars in the academy and gender theorists in the, because India, Indian philosophy, Indian traditions have not theorized gender. There is a lot of gender exists, but theoretical uh, framework 
is missing in a way because we we are just it's a very nascent field that people are starting to do it but the people in the in or the texts and the traditions are doing gender for longest time so it's not the lack of material that's more exciting for me and was that there's so much material and the, we can even create new categories a new way of looking gender a new way of bringing real life changes so the um, different um, sections I created, first one was gender essentialism. So we know that essentialist perspective of gender is a male, female, and Anna Funes, um, her full name is Anna Laura Funes Madre. She did a great job in um, really turning upside down the Sankhya philosophy of the body through feminine eyes. And what she calls it, the unbearability of the male gaze. And then after that comes the um, women's liberation in Jainism. And I focus, so that's, I write on that um, topic. And I bring the philosophical debates with cultural dialectics and show how the Jain scholars have been debating gender for, for many, many hundred years and how the women are have resisted some of the gender essentialist norms and created their own space. It's, it's, my research was just so much fun to do on this, that section that is there is a framework and within that framework, how do you challenge the normative categories and you know so at times misogynist systems. And it is that fascinating to see the Jain thinkers were doing themselves. It isn't like that they were reading the you know Western world views on that. They were doing several hundred years ago about debating the women's right to liberation, women's right to gain Kevala estate. And then, of course, in that section is we have a chapter by um, our own Raj Balkaran, uh, the story of uh, Sanjana. Actually, I think mine is a little later. It's with, um, I believe Sorry. mine comes in a later section. I think it's Gopal Gupta's in this, Woman as Maya. Yes. Oh, sorry. Then comes the woman as Maya gendered. So I had to move yours later because ah, it, you were going to put. Okay, okay. So tell me more about this. You were going yeah, to put so my, mine here, I, ah. right? Because this one was, you know, the, in a way that you are sort of uh, subverting gender essentialism in a very beautiful through this myth. So first, I had in the original manuscript, I had yours there, and then mm. I had to say, no, no, he fits. They are better. So that's fascinating. And and for the record, had you had you included it there, I wouldn't have objected. I would have understood why. So I think it does fit better with the category created with myself and Rita Sharma. But I I understand why you would fit it there. Yeah, I think that, see, that shows my thought processes. I'm remembering what I did rather than looking at the book. No, but so, this is brilliant. I mean, this this you won't get in the book. This you'll only get on the podcast. <laughs> you know how you're building a house and you say, you know what? This room should have been, you know, wouldn't need a wall here. It looks too closed. Let's, let's put this, you know, breezeway or something. And it fits better. It's like you're putting this. So I was speaking from my memory. So I think no, just beautiful. 
Yeah. So then comes Gopal Gupta's uh, chapter, Women is Maya and Gender Narratives in the Bhagavata Purana. And he does an amazing job, the how through the uh, Krishna and Gopi's narrative. And um, that brings to a new understanding of the Bhagavata Purana. So now the second section becomes even very, so I just see it as the, I again, that was very deliberate to go with gender essentialism first, because that's what we see in the traditional texts, right? Traditional philosophies. And then what happens now the people are negotiating gender. Well, you're, it, it was, well, I mean, it's my, my love of story, but you're, you're telling a story with the categories themselves really. You're doing. I, I just I I haven't really reflected on it, Raj. So thank you for making me. So you can see my grin on my face and smile and struggle and talking to Raj. Uh, uh, yeah, the people are just listening. But one of one of my our uh, one of our colleagues emailed and said, I don't I, I've never met him, but he said I used to imagine you smiling the whole time you're doing this podcast. <laughs> and I said you're. I said something like that, but my grin is double in the moment because I'm currently wrapping up, um, I've just wrapped up co-editing a volume on um, Sanskrit narrative, um, uh, epics and Puranas, and uh, I'm just, I'm reflecting on how how impossible it is (laughs) a task at times to sum up the breath and organize it and curate it because, you know, there's so many options, but anyhow. um, I think that's what a reader who is, you know, all of her colleagues who are listening and who will be thinking about the book, they can relate to this struggle, you know? We all can relate to this struggle that how we, what to do now, how do I put it together? So the second- section two, yeah. Section two is, we call it part two is gender negotiation. And in this chapter, I bring the more contemporary, more later material. So in this one is the first one is Nancy Martin's chapter, and she calls it the gendering of voice in medieval Hindu literature. And she gives a, she's a Mirabai scholar, and she gives amazing, uh, really insights into Mira and how um, the, how the gendering of voice works in this um, medieval time, Hindu literature. And then um, my, um, colleague and PhD advisor, Chakrati Ram Prasad, and he goes into the Tamil literature, and which was very nice to have, you know, this kind of a wide variety of voices. And he says, give and take and perform gender in Tamil Tamil theopoetics. And um, his chapter was just takes the the idea of um, the different different uh, players, the different poets, Tamil poets, how they are, you know, dealing with the gender issues and how the gender is subverted, gender uh, essentialism is kind of subverted. And then, of course, gender in the traditional Sri Ramakrishna by Jeffrey Long, he um, talks about how Ramakrishna himself was, you know, he will was a Kali devotee. And then even then the tradition, it became more male-centric, but then there was still, you know, Vivekananda gifts to female, you know, leadership and how, you know, the mother herself. So it's, it's a lot of complexity that he brings in a, in a short um, chapter. Should I keep going? Yeah, I'd say you keep going. Or the next, um, next section, uh, part three is called Androgyny Gender hybridity and fluidity. 
So maybe just as you've been doing, say a quick note on everyone's chapter and then maybe talk about some broader themes. How's that? Yes. So the um, what was unique about this section is that we don't see so much material in the uh, the Western uh, framework or Western philosophical traditions. There, there might be here and there, but the androgyny uh, is just uh, very unique uh, and, and gender hybridity. That what does that mean? That you can be both male and female, neither male or female. So and the fluidity that you can change, you know, from one, which are very sophisticated categories in today's world. But what, how I show it, these texts and traditions are doing it. These scholars have done an amazing job to show. The first one is by Jeff Ashton, um, and he talks about divine androgyny and the play of self-recognition, revisiting some issues in gender theory through an unorthodox interpretation of Ardhanarishwara. I mean, Ardhanarishwara is the symbol of androgyny. But then he again used Sankhya theory and, and interesting ideas to show that. And then gender in Pali Buddhist tradition. That Carol Anderson chapter is so unique. And I am going to read for my classes. And it just shows that not many people think about the, the way the gender is um, configured in the Pali Buddhist traditions. And the, the last one in this section is my own chapter. Again, the narrative of Amba, um, Raj, you'll appreciate it in the Mahabharata. And it's a female body, gender, gender, and the namesake of the divine feminine. How Amba is a divine goddess. Also, how I reread the text in a more feminist way. I reread the text more creative way, rather than saying that she is being... Um, abused and she's being um, mistreated. Of course, I show it how she is mobilizing, exuding her female feminine Shakti power to take down the most, uh, the strongest patriarch, Bhishma. So I, I play with that narrative and look oh, at deeper. It, it certainly is, a, it would be a cue to any storyteller, to any audience, the name of any character would be a cue. Right, Vaishampayana, for example, you know, Amba. <laughs> Her name is Amba for a reason, and the 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 um even by this time, even by the time, even by the time of the Mahabharata, right, there would be an awareness uh, of Amba uh, probably as a popular name for you know the goddess. You know, in, it is. So it's 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 um it's fascinating. It's sort of. Intentional. It reframes for us. Yeah, it's intentional. Of course, it's intentional. It, it, that it that it means something to my mind is 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 evident. What it means now is up to folks like you to or myself, whomever, to figure out and really to show her agency and her power. And really, part of what I find compelling about that read is that uh, the the authors of the Mahabharata are saying that you know what what sort of force must it take to um, to defeat Bhishma. Yes. And who do you, uh, I mean, it's so intentional that story is, right? Here it is a gender sort of um, negotiation going on in her. So all three are going on in her life. That's the one story that we read that really fits into my, um, this section, right? Because uh, the, she is the embodiment of neither male nor female, right? Male and female. 
And this, this a very fascinating gender interplay is going on in that text. And what I focus on, the um, stories, uh, the, what he does in, she does in the forest and meets the ascetics and how they never blame her for her condition. And that's very fascinating. When we read the secondhand scholarship, sometimes people do, you know, can blame on her or she is just so angry and uh, and she got the she got the shorthand of everything. But but the the sto- the text is not doing that. The text is really giving her full agency. It's, and it's, it, it presents as righteous wrath. Like she's right, indignant, yeah. she's angry, she has every right to be angry. Uh, and, and you know, this blood belongs to her. It's like when Draupadi asks for um, her hair to be washed in blood. One gets the sense that the text isn't chastising Draupadi. It's saying, hell yeah, who wouldn't in your position at this stage in your journey you feel this way? And, and one yeah. does get the te- sense from the text that no, uh, Umba has... Amba's not at all being rebuked for her emotionality, even by Bhishma himself. Yeah. Yeah. Never she's told that, oh, why are you angry? Calm down. You know, <laughs> just to say. <laughs> take, take a chill pill, Amba. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Men do that. That's okay. You know, it's like the text is going along with, okay, we need to bring Bhishma down, who is invincible through her hands. And she's not, even though some say, oh, she's, she's Shikhandi, but Bhishma sees her as Amba. Bhishma does not see her as Shikhandi. But that's why it's Amba, the Ambopakyana, right? Ambo this is why this is, this is the story of Amba. This is the name, the epithet's important. And I think I have to take a closer look and maybe compare it properly at some point with my scholarly brain, but nevertheless, there's a fascinating amalgamation of classical feminine and classical masculine tendencies in the conception of the great goddess that we see in the Devi Mahatmya. And so it's, it's not, it's, it's less, um, it's more difficult to accuse her of being improper for her, her station or her gender, or to chastise her when one makes uh, the analogy or makes the comparison of a fierce feminine figure, such as you know uh, the goddess of the Devi Mahatmya. So I think, I think it's compelling. I mean, I really do find this. Um, it, it, it seems to me the best interpretations of narrative are ones that illumine what's going on in the story world himself. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely my sense that this article does that for the Mahakana. Mm. Thank you. So then that part four is gender and the feminine divine. It's coming of feminine divine, right? Uh, and here first we have Rita Sharma's chapter, God and the God, the Mother and Her Sacred Text, a Hindu Vision of Divine Immanence. And um, so of course you know her work and she does great work on Devi and Devi Mahatmya. And the 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 next chapter is the story of Sanjana mother of Manu, shadow and light in the Markande Purana. Maybe you can say a sentence on that. It was only 12 articles ago. Um, long story short, there's this very famous, if I recall the article correctly, um, it, it, it's, there's this very famous myth of uh, Surya and his, and, and, and his wife Samya and, and, and Surya becoming literally overbearing with his, you know, his, his luster, his tages, his heat, and she can't take it. So she leaves uh, behind Chaya, her shadow. 
and Suri has ch- three children with Samya and three with Chaya and eventually three with with in in, in Chaya's e- e- when they're in equine form. Um, long story short, this narrative has been ascribed by by various scholars as one of a a a woman who was ill treated and and dragged back home. One doesn't get that sense at all. <laughs> When looking at at least the Markande Purana iteration of the narrative, where Surya realizes the he doesn't realize, I mean he's he's made aware of the ruse because his son, you know, complains about the ill treatment of his stepmother. He's like, You can't be my mother, you must be my stepmother, you must be someone else, you know, although I'm being rude, uh, you're cursing me, and a mother would never do that. He complains to the father, the father sees through the ruse, and then Surya goes to his father-in-law to be hammered down into <laughs> to have i believe one sixteenth of his pages left yeah the others were probably used for weapons he goes he submits to his father-in-law quite literally who happens to be the divine craftsman you know uh to be hammered down so that he would be suitable yeah. <laughs> for and then he goes off he sees that she's, uh, according to the text, doing austerities in equine form uh, in the fields, and he takes on a stallion form and he goes to meet her. And there is there is another interesting story about them um, producing three more children, uh, two of whom are the, the Ashvin, Ashvin Kumaras. But nevertheless, you have you you have the story of this feminine figure who says, "Look, I'm going to do what I can, get out of here because I can't deal with this." And 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 she chooses to take him back once he's mended his ways on some level. And so I feel that that obviously there's you know there's not one perspective to any mythic text. The mythological text, by its very nature, is like a gem to be looked at from yes. different angles. It's speaking in multiple ways. That's the power of mythology. That's the power of such narrative, in my view. But nevertheless, it's shocking to me that not only hasn't this has has this view not been evident uh that uh, a common characterization of this myth cycle is you know Samnya being dragged back home uh, uh by surya and so th- that's sort of what this is driving at yeah i've said enough it's now your turn <laughs> yes it was um really unique way and especially this story unlike amba is not known so that was really fun to have, you know, this a different angle that comes. And oh, there's a very important point. I should have looked at my article again, but the very important point about this, the larger argument I make in a number of, of other places that this story, this story is what comes right before the Devi Mahatma in the Markandi Purana. So Samya is actually framing the Devi in some sense, why would they choose this spot and this story? This There must be a thematic thread there, and the thematic thread, perhaps, perhaps, is this feminine power, this feminine agency that we see uh, with yes. Samya on some level. Anyhow, that's uh, enough, enough for me, more from you. Right, that's why it was it better fit now in the feminine divine, right? Um, then, of course, like I said the, earlier, I had you earlier, but then I thought, no, it fits better in this uh, part four. And so now the last part was gender transcendence. Um, 
So the the first is Ruth Vanita's um, article, Male-Female Dialogue on Gender, Sexuality, and Dharma in the Hindu Epics. And she does a very interesting job through two dialogues between male and female sages in the Mahabharata. So in the one dialogue, she focuses on the ontology and epistemology of gender. And the other dialogue, she brings bodily pleasure and sexual pleasure into picture. So I, those who are listening, it would be great to just really read how the um, the female, uh, the shown are so powerful and asking these pointed questions and the dialogues are the very um, revealing about, um, you know, complex ways to uh, frame and interrogate gender difference, likeness and equality, especially in relation to dharma. So that's uh, Ruth Vanita's chapter. And the last one is the Nikki Gunindar Kaur Singh's chapter, and it's on Sikh tradition, and is the, the vision of the transcendent. Um, one, uh, feminist hermeneutics and feminine symbolism in the Sikh scripture. And if we know her work, um, she has done a great uh, job in her research and in her books to show the feminine symbolism and feminine um, hermeneutics in the in the uh, the Sikh scriptures and um, all the the gurus how they are female symbolism um, shows up in many many ways so that's in a nutshell um, at the the range of and again like I said it is sort of um, scratching the surface of the iceberg it is no by no means is comprehensive in a way because there's so many texts so many traditions so many potential um research uh, venues and research um the scope of research that can be explored so um but this gives a wide variety of chapters wide varieties of gender constructions wide variety of dealing with the question of gender and how does it look like and then i make in my introduction just want to say one sentence that how these ideas are played in the real life so india has really recognized the category of three genders so in the forms, when we fill out our form, it's not gender binary. We the male, female, and third. Did you know that, Raj? Um, I, of course, knew of the category, but I didn't know. Yeah, no, it's, legally, know. it's legally. Now you have to choose one of the genders. And also when there was a uh, the protest uh, by women in, about this temple, uh, in in South India, where um, women could not go, and the they were also looking at the the mythical stories where the women are the equal partners, and um, so there are many ways. Even the Amba story shows up in the third gender um, when we talk about or the you know the the trans, a transcendence a transcendence in the the yogis that who gandhi himself wanted to be neither male or female he wanted to go beyond gender so i think there's so many in real life issues that can be have implications for these um philosophical mythical theoretical ideas religious ideas how can they be um brought into or could be more aware in the real life situation when we are dealing with all very complex, you know, gender issues. And we are finally being aware of not just gender binary, but various ways the gender we see that emerge in our social 
political in a real context. Fascinating. So, so co-editing, or sorry, editing, <laughs> initially you were going to be co-editing, but editing this volume, um, it must have been a bit of a journey. And uh, could you comment on, did was it sort of as you expected? Was it, um, did certain elements of this surprise you? You know, what was that journey like? Deep breath. <laughs> it's a, uh, it was not easy. <laughs> it was so many surprising challenges that um, some authors could not um, give the chapters for some very serious reasons. Some uh, work needed to be more polished. Some uh, how to put together this very wide, vari wide variety of voices and and stories and uh, issues and um, without calling it, some would say, why is not call it the um, volume and gender Indian religion or something like that? Uh, because it is really asking very serious questions. And I know it's not religions don't ask serious questions. They're asking their own question on right. But philosophy becomes more like an umbrella, the bigger umbrella too, where we can debate, we can answer, we can question. Of course, the religions in Indic traditions, the Dharma traditions, they don't have these hard and fast lines. And we need to reclaim that, that between philosophy. And of course, there is a way to do philosophy, there's a different field, different way to think through it. And so that was another challenge, how to bring it together, how to create this coherent narrative, how to create this story uh, to tell um, the reader and for our students to really think about these questions to not only uh, for, for the intellectual, um, satisfaction and exercise, but in the real world affect the real world applications. It strikes me as a book that would be very useful in undergraduate classes pertaining to gender of various stripes. Um, I'm wondering, um, were there particular audiences in mind for this book or who do you think might it most um, resonate with or serve? So I think it will be great. It is a great book for even master's students, uh, those who are studying gender, because there's no other volume that exists. Um, I had the audience were also scholars who are uh, researching gender because I was looking at and I couldn't find too many resources um, in this field. And in the various um, scholars and thinkers or students, for example, if you're studying Buddhism, the way Carol Anderson's article is, is a very unique way to look at gender. So they can pull these articles and, and look at how gender is so uniquely been debated in, in polytext or, you know, Ram Prasad Chakravarti's uh, article on Tamil literature, or, you know, your article on the, the the myth of Sanjana. So I think there is a there is a lot of uh, broader audience. Is is sort of I call it interdisciplinary, that we could be you know various disciplines um, can use and um, especially the classroom as you said you know upper level undergraduate courses or masters it can be used very easily to see the variety of gender the way it is configured in Indian philosophy, philosophical texts. 
fascinating. Is there anything else about the book that you would like to mention before we close for today? I want to talk about the book cover. <laughs> so yeah. I, was actually, I was actually going to ask you and I thought it's a podcast. Should I, shouldn't I? Yeah. So mm-hmm. Rina, uh, where did the cover image come from? <laughs> so the book cover, it's always hard, right? You know, how do you, what cover, you know, people say that the cover speaks uh, to, you know, what is the book about? So I was uh, not sure which one to use. And then I went to India and I saw this art book in a museum and it is, has the different um, paintings. And this one is from a fort, uh, 1810, and it's called Three Maiden, Maidens Under a Willow. And if you look at the images, they don't look, even though they call them female, you see androgyny, you see uh, hybridity on the in the images and the playfulness, the the under, there's a one woman in the left corner on the below. And it feels that it's a lot of interplay of going on. So I just fell in love with this image and I talked to my editor and they said, yes. And so here we have it. Oh, it's a, <laughs> all jokes aside, and I, and I, I I never do, but I was so close to asking about the image. I know we had talked about it. Uh, it's compelling, but we had talked about it um when the book was featured at uh, at the AAR, the last AAR. Uh, you you had answered a question about it, and I thought, wait, it's a podcast. Hey, but you know what? People are on their 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 phones. They're by their computers. They can easily uh, Google the book or or click on the link in the podcast notes and see the lovely image. I am actually grateful that I um, circled back after I def- defended what twenty fifteen ish. I circled back and said, yes, I will contribute that chapter. <laughs> I know. I'm so happy. I'm so glad. It worked out well. Um, the idea that, you know, one thinks one doesn't do gender, that's an idea born of the scholarly mind that's categorizing. Yes. And one, the work that one does really, you know, step away from the way in which I'm seeing it through my training and my methodology and see how it, it, it is. It is an article on gender, clearly. It's not heavy on gender theory. That's not my training, but clearly it's an article showing ancient Indic characterizations of the masculine, the feminine, the interplay and sociological dynamics between father-in-law and, and, and son-in-law. And clearly, and and really um, uh, the, 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 the fact that uh, the narrative doesn't theorize, it doesn't theorize consciously, but it does do the work of religion and philosophy in a certain way. Yes, sort of, and, and, and that's what the, that's the joy of the. When you ask, now I can answer your first question last. Uh, good. <laughs> what kind of challenges? What kind of? Um, the, what did I feel during this journey? Absolutely, you articulated it. You know, I said, "Oh, I don't know what philosophy is." I was so hung up on the categories, right? That what is religion is, what is gender is. I'm not a gender scholar. I'm not gender studies scholar. Well. Now, after writing the book, I can I can do a lot of gender now because you know I educated myself. But at the same time, going into interdisciplinary interconnections in ideas that the new theories emerge out of that, the new ideas it gives rise to. So we are not trying to fit in a 
theory. Rather, we are bringing theories out of this material. Yes. And that's a thing I've touched on a number of of times. I've joked, half joked a number of times that if one is studying all things Indic properly, then the data will change your theory. <laughs> then what you're looking at will change, will embellish it, or, or, or you know, force you to, to to dispense with, or it'll it'll alter the, the, the theory. That if you know whatever, you may have to start off with something going in. Yes. But uh, oh. but and then when 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 the data does what it's going to do in a sense, and you sort of follow along. Um, and then <laughs> the theory will shift. Yeah, for sure. And that's why my first chapter does exactly brings the theories in order to have a coherence, in order to have grounding, right? We need grounding. We need something. We have to build on what already existing. We can't have a house when it's not existing. And now you can go all kinds of ideas. You can make it and new ideas emerge out of that. So is not to diminish what's already existing. They are the one we we get help from, right? All these great scholars, uh, feminist thinkers, um, gender studies scholars have done a great job. So I can have a language, I can have a vocabulary, I can have um, framework to discuss these things. And now, but we can say, let's look, there is another, yet another way to think about and new theories emerge. Fascinating. Well, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Raj. Appreciate it. Having for those listening, we have we have of course been speaking with Dr. Vina Howard uh, on this really fascinating um, um, uh, collection of studies, the Bloomsbury Research Handbook of Indian Philosophy and Gender. Um, keep well, keep listening, um, and keep contemplating. Um, the dynamism and fluidity of this thing called gender. Take care.